Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin, and today we're discussing the rise of meme stocks. This GameStop saga, as I'm sure you've been following, has been unlike anything we've seen before in history. There has never been this sort of confluence between social media and financial markets, and the underlying reasons why this is happening and the potential impacts of what this could mean for the future are pretty game-changing. So before we go too deeply into what the future implications will be, first let's outline the sequence of events as they've occurred thus far. It all started with investors shorting 140% of GameStop shares. This is pretty unheard of, and to put it in perspective, during the peak short interest in Tesla, only 20% of Tesla's shares were shorted, which is already pretty big. So the fact that GameStop shares were being shorted more than there were even shares outstanding in the company means that investors could really only make money if GameStop went bankrupt. Now, there certainly is a chance that GameStop could go bankrupt. It is a company that sells video games in malls, so it's sort of like a blockbuster, but for video games. However, the company is not bankrupt yet, and there is still the possibility that they could pivot to a digital play, and the gaming industry is exploding. So there is a real narrative to be had about GameStop having a redemption and really coming back strong as a digital native company. GameStop also has an exclusive agreement with Microsoft, where they are one of Microsoft's only verified sellers of the Xbox X. And I go to try to buy an Xbox X almost daily. It's been sold out this whole time. But GameStop is one of their partners. And GameStop has lots of partnerships with existing gaming companies. So there is a way that GameStop could come out of this and survive. The other element that's interesting is that there's a lot of nostalgia around GameStop because a lot of millennials who grew up going to GameStop waiting for the release of the newest game or the newest console, they love this company. They have fond, or we have fond memories of this company. So the notion that all of these short sellers could be trying to drive this company into the ground and force it into bankruptcy just so that they can make a turn and just because they didn't like the way GameStop fit into their pre-existing financial models really was angering to a lot of people who love the stock, love the company. So a few savvy investors noticed that there was this mismatch and there was this really precarious financial situation where an incredible amount of shares were being shorted for a company that is still surviving and still has a chance to make it in the future. One of these investors is Ryan Cohen. He is the founder of Chewy, which is an online pet retailer. And he did a great job creating this company that created pet food, created a direct-to-consumer channels. It was web first, it was digital first, it got sold for $33 billion. And not only did Ryan Cohen invest heavily in GameStop, he also joined the board of GameStop to help them make this transition to the digital age. Pretty soon, this became a story on the subreddit Wall Street Bets, where a lot of retail investors noticed that there was now a real chance that GameStop could turn around, and there's this real opportunity to do one of the most epic short squeezes in history, where not only could they revive one of their beloved companies, GameStop, and not only could they make a nice profit if it turned out well, they could also stick it to the man. And all of the bankers and the elites and the people who they had seen as oppressive and as rigging the financial system in their favor and destroying beloved companies like GameStop and AMC, this was their chance to get back and hit them where it hurts, in their wallets. And this is where the real power of the movement lies. 
it lies in this sentiment that the system is being rigged against the little guy. And you can see why this feeling is so prominent. In 2008, in the subprime mortgage crisis, all of the big banks who pretty much caused the crisis got bailed out and they ended up actually making money and accumulating more wealth over time. Whereas the little guy who bought houses and scraped by got left holding the bag. So that led to the Occupy Wall Street movement and you can feel the same sort of sentiment from the Occupy Wall Street movement with this new GameStop movement. And it's actually the same sentiment that got Trump elected, where Trump planned to drain the swamp and people loved that. And he talked all the time about how the system was rigged against the little guy. It's actually the same sentiment that you'll see at a Bernie rally, where he talks about how people are being left in the dust and all we care about is Wall Street interests and politicians and the entrenched 1% class of billionaires. So it really is this common theme that we are seeing in society where there is this massive gap between the haves and the have-nots, and that gap has gotten wider and wider over time. So rather than thinking of this GameStop movement and meme stocks as a one-off movement, it's really the culmination of all of these feelings that people have been having throughout the last few decades. And this, this movement of Redditors and Wall Street bet people, and eventually it was far beyond that, they chose GameStop, GME, as their chosen banner. And once this movement took hold on Reddit and it started to get picked up by the news, I think everyone was surprised at how quickly this escalated and how successful it was in those early days. So the price of a single share of GME went from $20 a share to $468 a share in the span of just two weeks. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that when you're shorting a stock, you can lose a lot more than you can when you're just buying a stock. If I buy a stock for $100 and that company goes bankrupt, the stock goes to zero, the most I can lose is the money I put in, $100. But if you're shorting a stock and then that stock multiplies in value, you could lose multiples of the money you put in. So this is what happened with a lot of the hedge funds. One hedge fund in particular, Melvin Capital, lost 53% of their assets under management, and they had to be bailed out by other hedge funds for billions of dollars in order to stay solvent. So this really did hurt the hedge funds, and it was successful in the sense that all of the people that had these incredibly precarious short positions on GameStop had to sell for a huge loss. However, one thing that is also worth noting is that it wasn't just hedge funds that were shorting the stock and it wasn't just Redditors who were buying the stock. Once this movement took hold and the media started talking about it and it was everywhere on the news, you essentially divided the entire world into two categories, pirates and farmers. And I find this mental model really useful to think about, which is that the whole world can be thought of as divided into pirates and farmers. And this comes from a book by Dave Hickey. And he basically says that people who identify as a farmer are all about building fences, controlling territory, entrenching the established and existing rules, whereas pirates are people who like to tear down fences and cross borders and disrupt the established rules. And during this GameStop saga, you really saw the entire country and the entire world divide into these two groups. 
Either you were on the side of the Redditors and the Wall Street Bets people and the disruptors and the Bitcoiners and the decentralized finance people and you want them to win and you want them to disrupt this system or you are on the side of the establishment and you think, well, maybe these retail investors shouldn't have such open access to trading and maybe this is really dangerous and maybe we do need to halt trading of these shares. And it doesn't matter so much how much wealth you have. It's really a question of identity and your essence at your core because even billionaires like Chamath Palihapitiya was very vocally on the side of GameStop and Wall Street bets. And he put in a call option to buy $100,000 worth of GameStop shares and he 5X'd his investments and then sold out and ended up donating it all to the Barstool Small Business Fund. Elon Musk also tweeted his support for the GameStop movement. So it's clear that Elon and Chamath, those guys are pirates, even though they're billionaires and Elon's the wealthiest person in the world. Whereas some of the people you'll see like the anchors on CNBC and some of these more old school hedge fund guys, they're more like farmers. There's also a generational aspect to this because millennials have far less wealth than baby boomers did at the same age. So millennials now have 3% of total U.S. wealth, whereas baby boomers had 21% of total U.S. wealth at the same age that millennials are today. So this is a massive delta. And there's this feeling that's been growing for a while now that there need to be fundamental changes so that we can level the playing field. And Robinhood was the app that helped to level this playing field because now regular people could invest money with very little experience. All they need is to download a free app, not pay any commissions, and they could start trading and they could start building wealth. And this became the essentially the horse that led the movement for this whole GameStop saga. But right at the moment when it mattered most, right as this share price of GameStop was hitting its highest point of $468 a share, Robinhood halted trading for GameStop and for other meme stops that had a lot of vitality like AMC. And this was huge for the entire world because now Robinhood, which has had been essentially the pirate ship carrying all the pirates, now was seen as a farmer and really as being part of the entrenched elite. But it's unclear if this is really a fair assessment to make because it may be less that Robin Hood is nefarious and they wanted to hold the little guy down. And it's more just that Robin Hood is beholden to the same legacy finance rules as every other fintech company. And it wasn't just Robin Hood that halted trading of these stocks like GME and AMC. It was dozens of other platforms also halted this. So let's talk a little bit about why this trading had to be halted and what it exposes about the underlying financial system and some of the weaknesses in that system. Essentially, it came down to this. Robinhood did not have enough cash on hand to float all of these investments that people were making. And to Robinhood's defense, this was one of the biggest movements and most volatile times in recent history in the stock market. And every time someone buys a share, there's two days that it takes for that transaction to actually take place. So during that two-day period, Robinhood is on the hook and they have to put up some money so that the shares can actually be transferred to you and the money can actually be transferred through the exchange. And this gets even further complicated with options. 
when you do a call option to buy a stock at a certain price or a put option to sell a stock at a certain price, there is a longer period of time that Robinhood or whoever the exchange is has to foot the bill. So in order to foot this massive bill, Robinhood had to draw on their credit lines. They had to raise an additional $1 billion in funding from Sequoia and their other investors. And this was a problem for many exchanges, not just Robinhood. Now, most people were not seeing it that way, and they were absolutely enraged by the thought that the pirate ship could suddenly become on the side of the farmers and the big hedge fund guys. So Apple and Google literally had to remove hundreds of thousands of reviews, uh, negative one-star reviews on their app stores for Robinhood and other similar companies. At the same time, the Discord server that was hosting the Wall Street's Bet Forum the ground zero for this whole GameStop movement got taken down. And they said it was for hate speech, but the timing of it just seemed very suspicious. So this started as a story about these Redditors taking on Wall Street, and now it's become this story about the entrenched establishment, whether it's Apple and Google removing reviews, whether it's Robinhood halting trading, or the clearinghouses, or these other Wall Street companies halting trading, or whether it's about Discord taking down Wall Street bets and the censorship angle there. There is clearly this greater narrative about the entrenched establishment, the elites, the farmers holding down the little guy and not wanting the little guy to get out of his position and actually accumulate some wealth and some power. And a lot of people are just realizing for the first time how the financial system actually works. And people aren't loving how it works. It's really clear that there needs to be more transparency in the system. The fact that there can be more than 140% shares shorted for a company and that that number actually differs depending on what platform you're looking at shows that there's not the same level of trust and transparency that you would hope there would be in financial markets. When we talk about decentralized technology like Bitcoin and the blockchain and Ethereum, the reason that is caught on so much is because there's a public ledger for every amount of Bitcoin or Ethereum that someone owns, so it's totally verifiable. Anyone with a computer can verify who owns what based on the private keys in the blockchain system. So how did we get here? How did the legacy financial system become so outdated, have so many problems, and for the wealth gap to become so great? What has led to this? And there's actually a term, a shorthand for this whole trend, which is called grunge of giants. And it was dubbed by Buckminster Fuller in his book. And grunge stands for gross universal cash heist. So how has this grunge of giants actually played out in history? Let's start with World War II. At the end of World War II, the U.S. became the world's reserve currency. And it made sense because the U.S. had the biggest economy in the world at that time, coming off of the victory of the Allies over the Axis. And also the U.S. pledged that every dollar would be convertible in gold. So the dollar was on the gold standard. Therefore, it wasn't that risky for other countries to hold U.S. dollars as their reserve because at any time they could just exchange it for gold. But in 1971, President Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard. And he was doing that for 
really international relations reasons because a lot of foreign countries were exchanging their dollars for gold and there was this concern that the U.S. gold reserves were being drained. So to stop this and to keep America's edge against the other countries in the world, Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard. It's important to note that this has happened many times in history. In fact, every currency throughout history has eventually gone to zero. And it's because it's simply too tempting for the government in power not to print more of their currency that started out as good as gold. And so far, this has been pretty okay and actually great for the US and for any other country that holds reserve currencies, because anytime there's an economic recession or during the COVID pandemic, for instance, countries that are in trouble but that have a reserve currency can print more of their money. And because it's a reserve currency, the value of that currency is not going to drop by very much because essentially when the central bank of the U.S. prints more money, everyone who holds dollars gets devalued a little bit. So it's not just Americans, it's every person in every country around the world that owns dollars that gets devalued just a little bit. So the more that people use your currency, the more leeway you have in printing money and not having there be some massive negative effect. Now there is some tipping point where once you print a certain amount, like if we just printed you know, infinite money tomorrow, well then yeah, the money would become worth nothing tomorrow. But it's really hard to say what is this threshold that if we print just this amount, that's when we'll hit the tipping point and that's where we'll see massive runaway inflation and massive devaluation of the currency. And the way the US has used this advantage has really only benefited a very small number of Americans and it has actually hurt the majority of Americans. And the way this has happened is through trickle-down economics. When the central bank prints more money or creates more money digitally in a computer system, they either use it to buy bonds or they'll give it to the, the banks. And then the banks will lend it out to businesses and therefore it's supposed to trickle down eventually to the little guy. But this has been shown never to really work. Trickle-down economics doesn't really work because wealthy people tend to take their extra money and just put it into assets and investments. And that's why we've seen the prices of assets like real estate, the prices of stocks, the prices of gold and silver, these asset prices are all going up because wealthy people, they will buy those assets. And that makes it even harder for the little guy who's not getting much of the trickle down already. And now he's having to deal with higher home prices, higher asset prices if he wants to get into the stock market. And the minimum wage hasn't even kept up with inflation. So it is 100% accurate to say that the system really is rigged against the little guy. And if only we had taken the exact same amount of money that we'd printed since 1970 and just given it to people in a bottom-up way, we would be in a much better scenario than we are right now. And as a side note, this is why I am a supporter of UBI. It's not because I think we should be giving out all this extra money to people on top of all the existing expenses we have. It's that I think the money that we are already creating de novo would be better spent giving it to real people who can use it and actually spend it on goods and services rather than doing the trickle-down approach of buying bonds and giving it to banks and giving it out to businesses as PPP loans and hoping that eventually it trickles down to regular people. That is just such an inefficient way to try to improve an economic condition. 
and it's been proven time and time again not to work. Now, the really interesting trend that I'm seeing play out right now with GameStop and the whole Wall Street Bets movement is that a lot of retail investors are having the epiphany that decentralized finance and Bitcoin and the blockchain are the only technology stack that can actually take on the entrenched establishment. It started as GME, AMC, all of these other meme stocks. They realized that they don't have full control to buy and sell those stocks because Robinhood and other companies, clearinghouses can essentially halt trading on those stocks. But you can't halt trading on Bitcoin or Ethereum. There's no trading hours for that. Anyone can buy it at any time. And it's really hard for the government to stop you. So there's now been this movement to buy a bunch of Dogecoin. And I'm sure eventually this will lead to far greater adoption of Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain technologies. And the DeFi movement is accelerating because of what's happening right now with the rise of meme stocks. And when you just think about this from a first principles perspective, why do we want some central organization to verify money when we can instead have a public ledger where it's clear everyone knows who has money, who owns what, and there's never going to be confusion about two people owning the same thing. And even beyond wealth, you can store other important things in the blockchain so that it's totally secure and you don't have to depend on any sort of counterparty. For instance, medical records. It would be great if you could have medical records on the blockchain so that you don't have to worry about some hospital getting hacked and all of your information gets leaked or they lose your information and they don't have the latest information. Anything that is really valuable for you to keep tabs of and you don't want it to get lost somehow or you don't want some counterparty to misuse it, that would be better stored on the blockchain. Same thing with contracts. Like if I have a contract with someone, I want to make sure that contract is safely secured somewhere where anyone can verify, yes, this is the contract they both signed at this date. Here's what happened at this date. If some, some other part of the contract gets triggered, or with equity ownership, if I own shares in a company, if I'm working for a startup, all of these things would be better stored on the blockchain. I believe this evolution has already reached a point of inevitability. The transition from legacy finance to DeFi is occurring right now in real time. However, old habits die hard, and I don't think the legacy financial system is going to go down easy without a fight. And there will be a lot of casualties. A lot of regular people will lose a lot of their wealth as this transition occurs. And a lot of other people will stand to benefit tremendously if they play their cards right with the next five to 10 years. So let's talk about this in the future scenarios. Let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that all of this volatility leads to a collapse of the legacy financial system. So imagine one day you wake up, you open up your Robinhood app, and either Robinhood is insolvent and you can no longer access the app, or all of your shares are now at zero, or all your shares skyrocketed so much that it's clear that the value of the dollar is now worthless. And this is pretty unlikely in the short term, it could eventually happen. But there are enough safeguards in place that it's unlikely that there would be so much volatility that the whole system would collapse. But we are seeing some real strains on the system now. And it is making me think that it's a little bit more likely 
that there could be some sort of a flash crash or something where a lot of people lose a lot of their wealth all at once. It seems more likely now than even a year ago, based on what's happening with the confluence of social media and Robinhood. And when you think about how this could play out, it's like every day, this entire orb of the internet of Reddit and this growing group of Wall Street bets could decide on a certain stock, a certain asset, and it can just lead to these massive fluctuations. So the worst case scenario would be some of these trading platforms start to collapse. People want to pull their money out. These exchanges don't have enough money to go around, so they have to draw on their FDIC insurance up to 500K, but maybe some people have more than 500K, so they lose money. And all of that bailing out of the various exchanges and various stock markets, that could be the thing that triggers runaway inflation. So I don't know when massive inflation or deflation will occur, but I will tell you this, I feel much more safe about keeping my assets in Bitcoin or real estate or farmland or anything that is physical, you know, physical gold and silver. I feel much more confident about that than I do about anything that's tied to the legacy financial system. And obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum are a special case because they are digital, but because it's a public ledger, because all you need, even if there was an apocalypse and 99% of people died, all you need is one functioning computer to be able to verify that you own the Bitcoin that you own. I would say the next worst case scenario, that's nowhere near as bad as the first one I talked about, but it's still quite bad, is if there are restrictions put in place against the little guy, against the retail investor. So if they start to require minimums for how much you need to put in in order to enter the markets or some minimum experience requirement or the same sort of thing where you need to be an accredited investor to invest in a startup, whereas anyone can buy a lottery ticket, which has a much lower expected return value, those sorts of rules are what entrench the establishment and the elite against the little guy. So any sort of new regulations that help entrench the elite further would be a bad outcome. But ultimately, I think anything the U.S. does against the little guy accelerates the transition to DeFi and Bitcoin and the blockchain. Now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. The best case is that this whole GameStop saga leads to fundamental changes that improve access to financial markets and strengthen the underlying financial system. One improvement that I think is an obvious one is that investors shouldn't be able to short 140% of a company. They should at least be limited to 100% and probably they should be limited to something like 50% because it is too precarious of a situation. And personally, I never have shorted a stock. I simply buy the stocks of the companies I believe in and I hold it for the long term. And I won't ever sell unless I really need the money for liquidity reasons, but I am in it for the long haul. I buy the companies that I think are going to do well over the next 20, 30, 50 years, and I hold on to them. And that's the strategy that Warren Buffett uses, that Charlie Munger uses. So I would definitely encourage you not to get too heavy into shorting stocks, call options, put options, because that's when you can really have the risk of ruin. The other main improvement that should happen is increased transparency in the system. So right now, it is very nebulous what happens between someone buying stocks and someone actually getting the stocks that they bought. 
And it's really hard for people to trust in the system when they don't easily understand how it works. So by adding more transparency into the system, similar to how the blockchain has done, that's a great way for us to improve the strength of the underlying legacy finance system. Ultimately, I think it's very unlikely that our legacy financial system makes the changes they would need to in order to stay in power, because ultimately it's easier to create a new, better system than it is to reform the old system in many cases. So my realistic best case scenario is that the US has a smooth transition from our legacy finance system to a decentralized finance system. And that may include a digital US dollar where we can still do the same sorts of things that we need to with regulation and everything, but we can have more transparency in the system. And maybe it can actually be tied to Bitcoin or to Ethereum. So there is some inherent value and some trust that there will be stability over time. And I think the more that people start to adopt Ethereum and Bitcoin and those sorts of technologies, the better position the US will be. One of the main advantages that the US has over China is that we have an open system. So if the US learns to embrace Bitcoin and to not overregulate Bitcoin and Ethereum and allow all of these entrepreneurial companies in the US to create this new decentralized finance infrastructure, then that's a really good argument for the whole world to continue doing business with the US. So I think the best thing we could do as a nation is to embrace Bitcoin, embrace Ethereum, and rebuild all of our infrastructure on the blockchain. Now let's talk about the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The most likely scenario in my mind is that GME will stay relatively high for a relatively long time. I think people are underestimating the power of this movement and the power of people wanting to stick it to the elites. So I would not short GameStop. Uh, I wouldn't buy it either because I'm not one to speculate, but I definitely wouldn't short it. And I would say that the other major change that's likely to happen is that the stock market now is less about fundamentals and revenue multiples, and it's more about perception. And so therefore, I think in the coming years, someone who's really tapped into the current zeitgeist and what people are feeling and people who are extremely online and they really understand what everyone else in the collective is thinking, those people will actually beat out the math whizzes that do all of these calculations about revenue multiples because it's simply less important for the value of a stock now than it used to be. But of course, the best of all is if you have both. If you're a math whiz that really understands the fundamentals and the revenue multiples and the case for why this company will succeed and should succeed in the future with the knowledge of what the collective thinks about it, if there's nostalgia value to the brand, if they are seen as being on the side of the pirates might be a, a good case for them being a successful stock in the future. So obviously this combination will be the best of both worlds, but people who are really tapped into the collective, I think, can make a killing in the stock market in the next few years, whereas some of the more traditional older players, they may find that they're being outgunned by extremely online Redditors. It also seems clear that companies will not be shorting stocks as enthusiastically now as they used to, and they certainly won't be publicly talking about it because there is now the real risk that you can have a massive short squeeze 
driven by internet culture, especially if you're seen as being part of the big Wall Street hedge fund elites. And I think the biggest trend of all is that there is now this whole new generation of millennials and younger investors who are now taking their money and putting it into the financial markets. So we may see higher revenue multiples than we're used to. And I wouldn't be surprised if the stock market didn't continue to go up and up and up for the next few years as we have many more investors wanting to play the game. And the barriers to entry have been far lower than they were in the past. There will also likely be some reforms that happen as a result of the investigation of the SEC that is ongoing right now. But my feeling is that in the most likely scenario, it'll be too little too late. So it is inevitable that we will eventually transition to decentralized finance, to Bitcoin, to Ethereum, to a digital US dollar. And the one thing I want to end on is that we have not seen the last of this dynamic of the underdog versus the elite. And this is something that's going to play out tremendously over the next few years as we see the wealth gap widen even further, as we see automation ramp up, as we see more political polarization. So I think that this is really only one chapter of a story that's been written since 1971. And who knows when it'll reach its zenith. But I think on the other end of that, we're going to have a much better society that's a much leveler playing field for everyone involved. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next week. The past, the present, and the future. If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at hencethefuture. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.